Chad Wolf reveals why federal agents are protecting cities. Dr. David Samadhi on COVID-19 facts versus fake news. And the Appalachian Road Show is here. That's Ray Corley in the Music City Connection. And I'm your announcer, Keith Bilbrey. And Thank you so very much. We have a great audience here in our theater in Hendersonville, Tennessee, just outside of Nashville. Hope you can come and join us. We'll do everything we can to keep you very safe and COVID-free when you come to be with us. We have to limit the audience, you know, a lot less. But these folks, even though they're smaller in number than we're used to, because we have to hold it down, they're making noise like there's four times the number of people. And they're going to keep doing that. Aren't you, audience? Yeah. yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Well, do you know one of the greatest rights you have as an American? You can own property. I mean, that's one of your greatest rights, whether you realize it or not, because that's not the case in many places around the world. In China, you can only lease land from the government. You pay, but you never own it. Owning property and having the right to protect it and not have it taken, used, or destroyed is sacred in American law. Well, at least it used to be. Recently, St. Louis attorney Mark McCloskey and his wife were about to have dinner on their patio when hundreds of protesters broke down the gate of their privately gated home and descended on their property and threatened to kill them and their dog and burn their house down. They called the police, but none came. So they retrieved guns and appeared on the porch, and they told the trespassers to leave. The protesters, seeing the legally owned guns in the hands of the homeowners, decided they'd just move on. Well, arrests were made from that incident, but it wasn't any of the mob who broke down a gate, trespassed on private property, and threatened innocent homeowners on their own property who got arrested. No, it was the McCloskey's. They were charged by local leftist prosecutor Kimberly Gardner with a felony. Yep, despite the Second, the Fourth, and the Fifth Amendments to the Constitution, as well as Missouri state law, something called the Castle Doctrine, that guarantees the right to defend their property and person with lethal force if they feel threatened by a trespasser, the loony local DA did nothing to the mob and charged the homeowner with crimes and even confiscated their legally owned firearms. To make it worse, a member of Gardner's staff allegedly asked the crime lab to alter their firearms once they became evidence. So I do agree that someone ought to go to prison for all of this, but it sure isn't the McCloskey's. Things are a little upside down in our country when a government official ignores crime and the people who commit it, but who then criminally charge law-abiding citizens for exercising their rights and protecting their very lives. Even though the Missouri Attorney General has taken steps to intervene and get these nutty charges nullified, and Governor Mike Parsons has pledged that 
He will issue a pardon to the McCloskeys should these bogus charges ever get successfully prosecuted. The outrage of this should not subside. In the rioting and looting that's taken place in St. Louis in the past few months, not one person has been prosecuted by Kim Gardner for setting fires, looting stores, are throwing objects at the police officers because she believes that's acceptable and defensible behavior. But protecting your property and family? She'd love to lock you up. President Obama famously said that elections have consequences. Man, was he ever right about that. Because electing people like Kim Gardner or mayors like Bill de Blasio in New York or Lori Lightfoot in Chicago or Ted Wheeler in Portland results in putting criminals, thugs, and mobs in the driver's seat and leaving law-abiding citizens with the responsibility of protecting themselves. This year's elections are going to be about many issues, and the response to such things as the Chinese virus will certainly be one of them. But if we don't stop the virus of having elected officials encouraging mob rule and the destruction of private property, and worse, the loss of life by even one-year-olds to random gun violence, then the virus of uncontrolled crime will kill far more of us than COVID ever did or ever will. So despite the vicious and hostile prosecutions of the McCloskeys for simply defending their lives and property, and as you can tell, they're wealthy enough, so they'll probably be able to defend themselves and probably will win in court anyway. What about you? If you can't defend your home, your family, and yourself, all while the police have been defunded or demoralized and sidelined by crazy mayors and governors who justify violence and chaos, then will you be charged with a crime for trying? When you vote in any election, above what the candidates tell you they're going to do about taxes or health care or jobs, you better know what they will do when you are threatened to have your property or life taken from you. Will they stand with the criminals or will they stand with you? And I don't care what party they represent. If they won't stand with you, why on God's earth would you ever stand with them? <laughs> Acting Director of the Department of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf, is leading the federal response to the unrest in Portland as well as Chicago, Albuquerque, and other American cities who are experiencing unprecedented levels of violence in the streets. We welcome back to our show, Secretary Chad Wolf. Here's my conversation with him earlier. Mr. Secretary, there is uh, an ongoing issue two months now in Portland, Oregon, where uh, rioters every night go out and just uh, create havoc. Your folks are there to protect the federal buildings. The mayor, the governor there say, you guys don't have any place to be there. You ought to get out. Why do you say, but we should be there? How do you respond to their uh, in insistence that federal troop, or federal police officers rather leave? Well, uh, again, we're there to uh, enforce federal law. And as you know, uh, we don't do that by invitation. No other federal law enforcement agency does that by invitation. We need to make sure that we enforce federal law 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So in Portland, we are specifically there to guard federal properties, specifically a federal courthouse. It's the seat of justice there in Portland. 
And what we know is that target, that courthouse has been targeted for 55 nights straight in a row. Uh, violent criminals are attacking that courthouse and attacking law enforcement officers. We put up a perimeter around the courthouse recently. Uh, they have merged last night and the night before with power tools, trying to pull the fence over with vehicles. They are lobbying Molotov cocktails and other explosive devices uh, inside the fence line, targeting law enforcement uh, officers. So very, very violent. Uh, but the Department of Homeland Security is resolute in protecting that facility. We'll continue to do that because that's the job Congress gave us. Uh, it directs the Department of Homeland Security and specifically the secretary to protect all federal properties. And we do this across the country. We protect almost 9,000 federal properties. But unfortunately, Portland is the only city where we're having this issue because we're not getting the full support of the local and state law enforcement or leaders directing their law enforcement not to fully support us. And that's very, very troubling. I would have to think that uh, in the offline conversations that your officers are having with local and state police agencies, they can't be happy that they've been told to stand down and allow these people just to do whatever they wish. Do those conversations happen? And is there great frustration on the part of local law enforcement when they're told to just look the other way at uh, anarchy? I believe there is. Again, our, our individual officers, Federal Protective Service there on the ground in Portland, obviously has uh, personal relationships with other law enforcement there. Uh, so they're trying to coordinate as best they can. But again, uh, Portland is making it very, very difficult. What they have done recently, the city council has passed a resolution telling Portland Police Department that they cannot support they cannot coordinate with federal law enforcement officials in the city of Portland. And as you know, uh, you cannot be a fan of the administration. That's fine. But when you're directing specific actions like that, that becomes very dangerous for law enforcement. You brought up a very important point, and that is that uh, it's fine to have policy differences. You can have political differences, and those are historic. My gosh, I had them when I was governor for 11 years in a state at that time, heavily, overwhelmingly Democratic. But when a crisis came... Everybody put politics aside. There were no parties. It was all hands on deck. Let's solve a problem. I, I don't understand this new thinking of uh, putting politics above public safety, and I'm having a hard time understanding the justification for it, but I, I don't see this ending well if something doesn't change. What we have in other cities is if federal property is targeted, uh, what we have is that relationship between the federal, state, and local law enforcement to address that situation, to investigate, to arrest individuals, charge those, uh, and indict them. And we, are, we just don't have that support in Portland. It's unfortunate, um, and it's really causing a very dangerous situation uh, there in Portland. And I talk, about, I talk about that point because it's important. Whether we go to Seattle, whether we go to uh, Chicago or anywhere else, we have that support with local law enforcement when it comes to protecting federal buildings. Um, we just... We don't have that in Portland. What we see every night between about midnight and 5 a.m. is anywhere from 1,000 to 2,000 violent, violent criminals taking matters into their own hand, uh, attacking a federal building and then stepping back across the street, rearming, re uh, redeploying, and doing it over and over, night after night, hour after hour. Uh, and something needs to change. We need the state. We need the local law enforcement officials to say enough is enough, work with us, we can address this situation uh, in a matter of hours. We just need to be able to do that in partnership with them. When you arrest some of the leaders of these mobs, and that's what they are, these aren't protesters, these are mobs, violent anarchists, 
and they go to prison for 10 years, it, it seems like that that's the only thing that might be a reasonable deterrence when uh, some of these folks who just look at this as a recreational activity realize they could lose 10 years of their life in a federal prison over this, and I don't care what federal prison, that ain't pleasant. It's exactly what we're doing. We're really uh, pushing our Department of Justice colleagues, both the U.S. Attorney there as well as the FBI and others, to not only investigate but to make those arrests and to prosecute. So since July 4th, which is where we see the big uptick in uh, criminal activity there in Portland, we've made over 60 arrests, uh, and we'll continue to do that. We're going to continue to hold criminals accountable for their criminal actions. And again, because we don't have that partnership there in Portland, the federal government is having to do that all on their own, which I think is very different uh, than any other city uh, in the country. Mr. Secretary, before I let you go, a personal note. Happy anniversary to you and your wife who celebrate uh, your wedding anniversary this week. And I'm sure she has not seen you in a long time. I hope she recognizes you uh, with or without a mask. Uh, good luck and, and thank you for being with us. It's a pleasure to have you back. Uh, thank you, Governor. I appreciate the time. You can follow Acting Secretary Chad Wolf on social media at DHS underscore Wolf and visit DHS.gov to see what the department is doing to keep Americans safe throughout the country. Now, unless Keith Bilbrey has been arrested for disorderly conduct, he's standing by to preview some of the guests in our show tonight. So, Keith, are you there? I'm here tonight. Dr. David Samadhi talks COVID-19. Then Senator Marsha Blackburn celebrates 100 years of women voting. Later, a hot zero to our first responders. And Appalachian Roadshow performs on Huckabee. Next week, Adam Carolla on Why Our Culture's Gone Mad. And Barry Williams of the Brady Bunch shares memories and music. And welcome back, everyone. Well, each day brings a lot more news about the coronavirus, much of it confusing and contradictory, even from the experts. So we had world-renowned surgeon, health commentator, longtime Fox News medical A-team member, and director of men's health at St. Francis Hospital in Roslyn, New York, Dr. David Samadhi, who came in and sort of helped us sort out the truth. Dr. Samadhi, this seems to be so much misinformation about COVID, how vulnerable we are, how serious it is, what we should do, what we shouldn't do. Uh, if you could just speak to the nation and have a primetime address, what would be the most important message you would give to the American people medically? The biggest message I have for the American public is don't let fear and panic get ahead of your life. You know, uh, Governor, the, the DNA of any pandemic is being scared, being fearful. And when you start getting a lot of misinformation, from some of the authorities, some of the doctors out there. That even magnifies the, the panic level, and that's where we are. People are confused, they're losing their trust, and it's our job as, as someone who cares for this country, and you know how much I care about America, is to really come forward and give the facts to the best of our knowledge. But I want to tell the public that we have made a huge progress. We are in very good position. We have many treatment options, which I'm happy to talk to you about. Our hospitals are extremely equipped, and I believe in the healthcare system in America, and we are more than capable of taking care of it. We locked the economy down. We told people to stay at home. 
Uh, we were told that if we didn't, we would lose two or three million people to death. Uh, we did lock down, and we're you know at a horrible number of 100 and almost 150,000 people, uh, but nowhere near the millions. Did we do the right thing? Did we do too much? And are we still doing too much in light of what we now know? We understand that the initial models were completely wrong. Remember, they came up with a model that uh, two million Americans are going to be in body bags. And the media runs with this, and the scare in the country was tremendous. So the initial lockdown was basically to flatten the curve, to buy some time for the hospitals, and we did. As this went on, the narrative changed. And basically, now we see that as the number of these cases go up, uh, states like California, the, the fifth strongest economy in the world, just by the rise of the cases, they go back to the lockdown. This doesn't make any sense. And if you look at my Twitter feed, I wrote, lockdown is not a cure for coronavirus, for this Chinese virus. And the reason is because you're going to do more harm by keeping people at home. First of all, we're finding out that when you are at home, the risk of passing this to your family, to if you have friends coming over, is higher. You have air conditioning, so this virus can get over there, as opposed to being outdoor. And the other thing is that the anxiety, depression, psychological issues, millions of people that have lost their savings and committing suicide, now the risk of that lockdown is way more than this virus, and I think we are overdoing it. This is United States of America. We should be able to chew and walk at the same time. We can take care of this virus without paralyzing our country and our economy. I heard an epidemiologist say that this is the first time in history in a pandemic where we isolated the healthy people rather than only quarantine the sick people. Is that a fair assessment of what we've done differently in uh, the Chinese virus? It's a good assessment by this doctor, and it's always the case that we take care of sick people and we quarantine them, and we let the healthy people out there. The argument against that is that since asymptomatic people, and we still today, we're getting mixed messages. Today, as we are, the American epidemiologists and Dr. Fauci and others are saying that asymptomatic people are still can pass this virus to others. Many doctors have argued this that if you're asymptomatic, that your viral load and the amount of virus that you have is so low that you may not be able to pass this. And we've seen from WHO, they mentioned the fact that through contact tracing, countries such as uh, South Korea and Singapore, the chance of asymptomatic people passing this virus to others is very rare. And then they change their mind. So if that theory is correct and asymptomatic people are not gonna pass the virus, then there's absolutely no need to really isolate them and put them on quarantine. So again, this is part of the mix back. I think that if you have no symptoms, the risk of passing this is fairly low, but we have to be very careful. Don't forget, Governor, they always come up with the best scenario and the worst scenario. And it's always easier for them to paint the picture of the worst scenario, because when it gets better, they become the iconic heroes and they are the winners. But the public need to know the real science and real data and not just this mix of messages. Dr. Samadhi, two big issues every American sort of is dealing with. One is, should schools open? And two, should everybody be forced to wear a mask everywhere they go? What's your thought? 
the school needs to open up. And part of the reason is because we are seeing the data coming from many European countries, over 22 countries in Europe, that they have the data and the record that shows that it's absolutely safe to open up our schools. The risk of children getting this virus, transmitting it to the elderly, uh, I'm not talking about kids visiting nursing home, but to the parents is very low. And the risk of dying the, kid, the children from this virus is extremely low, close to zero. Now, the, the risk of keeping them at home, the loss of education, child abuse, uh, not getting the nutritions, and, and, and all of that is way further than, than uh, opening up our schools. So by new guidelines, by making sure that there is social distancing, wearing masks, protecting our teachers and students, I think it's time to open up our school, and I, I will absolutely feel safe to send my children to school. Uh, 20 seconds, mask, should we wear them? Well, I don't want this mask to become our new norm. If you look at a lot of people on one side of the aisle, they think that their liberty is taken away, their civil right is, is taken away. On the other hand, there are a lot of studies that shows that if we, the entire country wears a mask, they would be able to reduce the risk of death and infection. Somehow we have to compromise. For the time being, if it helps other people to reduce the death and if it helps reduce the infection rate, I think for the small transition point, we should follow the law and wear the mask and get rid of this pandemic. Well, I know that uh, a lot of people who see me say that I look much better with a mask over most of my face. So I will continue to wear the mask. Dr. Samadhi, thank you for joining us. What a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so, uh, so much. If you want more from Dr. Samadhi, visit davidsamadhi.com. And keep up with his insight on the coronavirus and other health issues by following him on Twitter at Dr. David Samadhi. Keith Bilbrey, why don't you tell our viewers what other exciting things we have coming up tonight? Well, I'd be glad to. Coming up, Huck's hero Robert Michaels and Senator Marsha Blackburn honors the centennial of women's voting rights. Later, the miracle adoption story of musician Barry Abernathy and his band Appalachian Roadshow performs on Huckabee. Go to MikeHuckabee.com and sign up for his free newsletter and follow at GovMikeHuckabee on Twitter. And welcome back. As a former police officer, my next guest wanted to address the mental and emotional struggles that officers and other first responders face every day. So Rob Michaels created Serve and Protect. It helps heal the wounds that no one can see. And that makes him tonight's Huck's hero. It was about two in the morning on a Saturday and the phone rang. And I answered the phone and this guy says, Rob, I'm either gonna eat my gun or come to Jesus. Had I not been there, I don't know what might've happened. People don't understand the stress that is involved in working in law enforcement or firefighting or corrections. These days, a lot of police officers are being ambushed. In, in many instances, they're getting called to a fake call. And when they pull up, they get shot and killed. They're traumatized by the things that they see. 
the things that they experience. And if they don't get help, it can spiral. They can start self-medicating with alcohol or pills. That's what happens. And ultimately, it can kill them with suicide. More police, fire, and corrections officers die by suicide than in the line of duty. Please welcome the founder of Serve and Protect, Rob Michaels. Rob, thanks for coming. I, I would imagine, Rob, that when you started Serve and Protect, you could not have foreseen the kind of things that are being thrown at our police officers today. No. Let me just say this. When I was a police officer in 1973, I'm that old. In 1973, when I got into law enforcement, I never imagined doing what I'm doing, much less what our guys are facing today. I, I think a lot of Americans are, are genuinely just astonished that the police have become targets. I mean, we have looked to them as protecting us and keeping our cities from anarchy, and now we see elected officials who are telling their police, stand down and let these people burn the, the police precincts and burn the businesses. I mean, it's got to be the most demoralizing time to be a police officer. That's why you're seeing record uh, retirements, resignations in New York. There are so many resignations and, well, so many retirements yeah. in New York, they shut off retirement for a while. They won't let them retire. Why, why would you want to be a cop in New York right now? Well, look at Louisville. They were out there ready to go in and take care of the rioters, and politicians said, well, you've got to remove your protective gear. Go in and soft talk them. I mean, Governor, more police and firefighters die by suicide than die in the line of duty. That's an astounding number. It, it is tragic. You started Serve and Protect in 2011. Yes, sir. It was a different world then, but, yeah. but clearly you saw even then, before it, it has turned into such a nightmare, that a lot of our first responders, not just police officers, firemen, my dad was a firefighter, so I, I'm deeply emotionally connected there, other first responders needed someone who could help them because they saw the worst of the things. We might see 30 seconds on the news, but they had to get in there and get in the middle of the worst scenes that were happening and crime and just horrific things happening to other people. You know, Governor, uh, probably the hardest thing they see is what happens to children. Mm. And that's the big thing in the news now is all the child sex trafficking and all of those things. But when you get out there and you actually deal with people who are hurting and dying, they may be the last person that, that has ever seen. Uh, I'm grateful that God surrounded me with a team. Hmm. Uh, Sean Riley from Safe Call Now is my partner doing the crisis line. Cheryl Novak is a therapist that handles our trauma facilitation. She calls and locates somebody. God has given us a team to go out and be there, be that listening ear to be that voice and to be that service that helps them find somebody to talk to before they go too far. How do people reach out to serve and protect if, if a person is a police officer or firefighter and, and they're struggling? And, and that's true for tens of thousands of these first responders. What do they do and what do you do to help them? Well, good question. Um, as I mentioned, uh, Safe Call Now is our crisis line. So we have our own phone number, 615-373-8000. It goes directly to Safe Call Now. Their peer advocates answer the phone. They determine that they need to go into residential care. If they do, 
they take care of that. Mm. If they need other services, then they'll send us an email with the person's name, the address, zip code, insurance carrier, way to contact them, and a little bit about what's going on. Yeah. We'll assign a peer advocate. We've got more than 30. And assigned by job, we'll have a firefighter call a firefighter. And they'll talk with them to find out what's going on. What do you really need? Well, if they need a therapist, then they'll get back with Cheryl and say they need a therapist. So she goes to work. We actually have facilitated more than 6,000 since 2011. 6,000? Yes, sir. Yeah. And we find somebody that takes their insurance. We interview them to make sure they understand the job because they don't want to talk to somebody that doesn't get it. Yeah. And we just started a medical division in April. Doctors and nurses are struggling with suicide mightily, mm. too. You know, so many Americans, I, I believe 95% of Americans want to help and stand by police officers, firefighters, uh, paramedics. They don't know how. So yes. helping you help them is one of the ways they can do it. Absolutely. Before we go, tell us, how can we help you help those folks through Serve and Protect? Two ways. One, um, tell people about it. Go to our website. We have posters you can download. Take it to your local police and fire station. Say, mm. this, this will help you. And while you're at the website, there is a little place up at the top. It says, donate. We are a nonprofit, a 501c3. We only exist by the good graces of those who support us. Mm. And we're grateful for those that do. Uh, but that's the best thing they can do. Spread the word and spread the love. Thank you for doing what you're doing, Robert, because there's a lot of folks out there hurting. And, uh, you know, if the mayors and some of these governors won't stand with them, uh, need the rest of us citizens who are willing to show we appreciate what these folks do. Absolutely. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, sir. Keith, I'm going to let you tell our audience just how they can support our police officers by learning more about Serve and Protect. Well, you can find more information and learn how to support our police all across the nation by visiting serveprotect.org. Next, Senator Marsha Blackburn joins us. Then, a miracle adoption story and the Bluegrass Supergroup Appalachian Roadshow is here on Huckabee. Welcome back to the show. I'll bet you didn't know the name of that song. If you did, you have watched the movie that Tom Hanks produced called That Thing You Do. It's actually a very cute little movie. And Trey, did you do that just for me? Absolutely, just for you. Yeah, he's lying about it, but I don't care. That's all right. Anyway, great movie, great little song, and we are happy you're here. Well, the 19th Amendment was ratified on August the 18th, 1920. And it finally gave women the right to vote. My next guest and her daughter have written this wonderful children's book. It's called Camilla Can Vote. And it's about the history of women's suffrage and the importance of voting. Please welcome back to our show, one of our favorites and the co-author of the book, Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn. <laughs> Senator, welcome back. Thank 
Thank you. It's delightful to be with you. Well, we're happy. Even if we have to have a limited audience, we're delighted we have one, and they're making up for the folks who didn't get to come. Yes, indeed. It's hard for me to believe that it's been a hundred years yes. since women had the right to vote. It's even harder to believe that for so long in the early part of American history, women were not considered capable of voting. It's astounding to think about that. And believe it or not, the fight for women getting the right to vote started in 1848 in Seneca Falls, New York, and finished on August 18, 1920 in Nashville, Tennessee at the state capitol. And, and that was one of the many things that I learned from reading this delightful book. I can't wait to read it to my grandchildren. because oh, it's thank you. It's a fun book, but it, it's yes. a historical uh, book of, of what you just said. And, and one of the fascinating things, there were 72 years between the time they first started working on women having the right to vote until it happened, and there were 72 steps up the staircase of the Tennessee, Tennessee Capitol. That's right. What a cool little piece of history. Isn't that just such a cool piece of history? And of course, Susan B. Anthony was an abolitionist, a pro-life crusader, and she really was the one who started to push this. And the 19th Amendment in our nation's history is actually called the Susan B. Anthony Amendment. And it is amazing to me that these women who started this never saw it come to fruition but they were so committed to it that they continued that fight. And it was grandmothers and mothers and daughters all working together. It was a multi-generational campaign and it was carried out with such civility. They would meet for tea in the <laughs> afternoon. Of course they would. <laughs> and plan what they were going to do. They had suffragist clubs and they would meet over tea. And then when they came to Nashville, the summer of 1920 and Carrie Chapman Catt was leading this fight. They had what is known as the War of the Roses. And I bet a lot of people have heard about the War of the Roses. Well, if you were a pro-suffragist, you wore a yellow rose. If you were anti-suffrage, you wore a red rose. So as it boiled down to that final day, the yellow roses won the fight and women got the right to vote. The fascinating final vote was that one of the uh, legislators yes. was not going to vote for it until he got an interesting note. That was a story I'd never heard before. You've got to tell us about that. Yes, this is so amazing. This young legislator, Harry T. Byrne, who was from Nyota, Tennessee, the youngest member of the Tennessee General Assembly at 24 years of age, he received a note from his suffragist mother, Miss <laughs> Feb, it was her name. And Miss Feb wanted her son, as she said in the letter, that she wanted him to not hold them in doubt, that he should help Miss Cat put the rat in ratification, <laughs> to be a good boy and vote for suffrage. So she sent him that note. And so he did what all young boys and young men should do. <laughs> and they listened to their mother. And yes, he indeed. took off the red rose. He put on the yellow rose. And it was a 48 to 48 tie. 
in the Tennessee house. And he got that instruction from his mother. He obeyed his mother and he changed his vote and the vote was won and women received the right to vote. The, 30, the 19th Amendment was ratified and Tennessee was the 36th state. So it's a great story. It is. You know, yes. here we are in the very place where women were finally given the right to vote after 72 years of struggling for it. Yes. Again, it's just hard for me to get my arms around the fact that uh, there was ever a time in American history where people thought that women shouldn't be able to vote. I mean, now we have, obviously, you're a United States senator, before that a congresswoman. You, you've had an extraordinary career politically. I've often said, Senator, that if it weren't for, in my case, the Republican women, I would have never been elected to anything. They did all the work. They honestly did. The Republican women were the ones who did all the work. The guys wrote checks, the women did the work. And that's really... Uh, yes, and you know, Governor, one of the stories, I think, through that weaves through this is the story of courage and commitment of these women to hang with this fight yeah. when the odds were stacked against them. And see, they were pushing to get a vote and they had no vote. They had no representation at all. They had to go create that. But they were dedicated, they were committed, they were gracious, they were polite, they were appreciative. They realized that this was not going to come easy. They didn't they burn anything down. They didn't it, burn did they? a single thing. Didn't so. throw a single brick through a window. You know, yes. I can't let you go without talking about the fact that you have a co-author in this, somebody yes. you know fairly well, Mary Morgan Ketchell, who happens to be your daughter. I yes. got to know, did she bring the idea to you? Did you take it to her? How did this collaboration come My about? fabulously brilliant daughter had this idea and brought it to me. And she knew this story growing up and she said she had always been so inspired because she could vote for her mother and her mother was breaking barriers. So during my swearing in, when we were telling the story of Tennessee history and she was watching these children be so absorbed in this story, a couple of months later she said, Mom, this needs to be a children's book because, and my daughter has two little boys, she said, but there are not children's historical fiction books that tell stories that are historically accurate. Hmm. And this is one that children need to know and appreciate. It's very vivid. Uh, your imagination can run with it. So she is both... Uh, a history, a student of history, and she is incredibly creative. So this is how Camilla Can Vote came to be. Well, as the senator from Tennessee, you're the only person who ought to write this book since the, uh, the, the entire amendment to give women the right to vote happened right here, right here in the Nashville area. Senator, it's a wonderful book. I can't wait to read it to my grandchildren, and yes. uh, they're going to love it. I loved it. It's a wonderful story with lots of surprises that I didn't know about. And we thank you so much for coming and tell uh, Mary Morgan we'd love to see her one of these days as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. And yeah. you know, we didn't thank even talk all. about politics because we had more fun talking about this great, great book. Yes. All right, Keith Bilbrey is barely old enough to vote. I know you're not going to believe that. <laughs> but he can still tell you where to get a copy of this great book for your kids or your grandkids to honor the 100th birthday of women getting the vote. Keith? Well, thank you for the compliment.
Camilla Can Vote is available now at Amazon and all major booksellers. You can learn more by following at Camilla Can Vote on Facebook. And to follow the senator, visit at Marsha Blackburn on Twitter. Next, the heartfelt adoption story from musician Barry Abernathy. Then award-winning bluegrass band Appalachian Roadshow gets us dancing right here on Huckabee. I hope you'll join with me and so many other viewers in our support of wounded veterans and their families through Samaritan's Purse. Putting these men and women who serve to protect your freedom back on track is a truly worthy thing to do. You can call Samaritan's Purse or just visit their website. Either way, I encourage you to give a generous gift. You'll make a difference in those lives of the veterans, all in Jesus' name. Well, the pioneering bluegrass band Appalachian Roadshow is getting critical acclaim for their latest recording, appropriately titled Tribulation, which was released right in the midst of the COVID lockdown. Well, they're going to perform in just a little bit. But first, I want you to hear an incredible adoption story from the band's founding member and banjo player, Barry Abernathy, along with his wife, Beverly, their daughters, Chastity and Emma, and the newest members of the family, Zoe and Tyler. Would you give a nice welcome to all of the Abernathys to our show? Thank you. <laughs> We're so glad to have you guys here. Barry, I'm tempted to talk music. You're a Grammy-nominated banjo player. The band has been one of the leading bluegrass uh, bands in the country. Uh, so many recordings. But there's something that has happened just in the last few months. It's pretty significant. Yes. Your daughter, Chastity, works uh, at a daycare center. And uh, she first met Zoe and Tyler while working there. And these children were foster children, and you guys took them in. And then you took another huge step <laughs> and you adopted them. Yes. But I want to know, when you first met Tyler, I want you to tell us why you guys connected. Well, it was, uh, the, you know, the whole story would take us too long, probably more time than what we have. But uh, the gist of it is my daughter works at the daycare. She came home a week or two prior to, to me meeting the kids. And she was talking about the little boy having a birth defect uh, or a birth uh, difference. I'd say you uh -huh. want a hand difference, you know, like like I have. So and you've you've got. I, I, yeah, I don't have fingers. Which on is my amazing. Neck. You play the banjo with a thumb and part of a forefinger, I'm, and that's it. I'm the best banjo holder you've ever seen. No, no, no. <laughs> you've been nominated for a Grammy with a hand that only has a thumb and a finger. I mean, that's Thank extraordinary you. in itself. Okay, Thank so go you. ahead. Well, anyway, I. I just basically told her she she brings home cats, she brings home dogs. She's one of those <laughs> those kids. And my wife and I never thought about uh, adopting or fostering or anything. And she was telling me about these two children and, and uh, the situation they came from. They had been in eight placements in, in about nine months. Oh my! Uh, just moving one place to the other, and, and we're just you know it was it was a rough situation for them. Well, I was getting ready to go out on the road on a, on a Wednesday evening, and. Uh, for some reason, I was going up by the, I was taking my youngest daughter to my mother's. We're going by the daycare center, I got about two miles from there, and, and it literally, uh, like everybody can believe they, the way they want to, but God got in the car with me. The Spirit mm. of the Lord dealt with my heart and uh, wanted me to go by and see these kids. And I thought, well, 
I don't know what this means, but I'm going to go by and see him. So I told my youngest daughter we were going by, and she's like, Daddy, I'm your baby. Don't do this. <laughs> but we stopped by, and, and Tyler was, uh, he was, he was about like from here to the band from me. Uh, my, daughter, my oldest daughter, Chastity, had shown him videos of me playing the banjo, and she mm -hmm. showed him that I had a hand like his. Well, he, uh, he's sitting back there with his buddy on, on a table there, and he just looks up, and he takes his buddy. Turn around, look here, buddy. And he pats him on the head, and he says, hey, look. That's my dad, and he just jumps up and runs to me and jumps up on me, and and uh, I mean it was touching. And I, I said, he said, "Are you my dad?" And I said, uh, "Do you <laughs> do you want me to be?" And he said, "You're my dad." And he took his hands and held me and just kissed me right right in the face. Oh my! Man, you can see he's a ham right now, but he uh, <laughs> he he uh, immediately him and Zoe both won us over. Well, that was Wednesday evening. You think? Yeah, you think that yeah. might have done it? <laughs> well, well, here's the whole deal. Was. I'm about to cry, <laughs> man. And I, I'm, you know. Well, the whole deal, the whole deal was I left, and my wife, we had not even spoken about it at all, and I got serious with God about yeah. it. I knew He was leading me to, to take these kids. For some reason, it happened so fast. Well. I prayed about it all the way over, and I got to the interstate, and I just kind of gave up, and I said, Lord, if you're going to put this on me, you're going to have to make a way. I don't see any way at 50 years old we could do this. I mean, we can't even hardly pay our bills now. You know, we're just, we're just scraping by like everybody else. Well, that was Wednesday evening. On Friday morning, the, the placement they were in had decided they were going another direction, and they had been moved so many times they were going to send them to an orphanage, uh, oh. a group home. So when they told us that, we have some friends uh, through the daycare, uh, one of the lady that runs the daycare, her daughter works with DFACS. Yeah. And she worked it out where we could take them and keep them for the weekend. We've had them ever since. Uh, Beverly, when uh, when this all happened, were you afraid that Barry might say, oh, no, honey, we can't take this on right now? I did. <laughs> <laughs> you did say that. Yes. Up. You yes. need to see it, buddy. Um, no, I was more worried about Emma because Chastity had just graduated high school. Yeah. And it was time for Emma to, you know, shine and have her time. And yeah. so I called home to talk to him and someone was there. So I wouldn't tell her that I had went by. And then he left to go on the road. And that's when he went by and he called me and I said, well, I've already been. So. Wow. It was like God put all this together. Yes. Emma, uh, how did you and Chastity react to the fact that, you know, Okay, here's uh, instant brother and sister coming in, moving, uh, moving in there. Is that okay? Well, Chastity was a lot more understanding than I was because <laughs> I'm the baby, and I've always not been anymore, the baby. honey. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I told Daddy I was like, well, I'm, I'm still the baby, and he was like, Emma, honey, it's gonna be different. I was like, uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it sounds like that you've gotten used to this idea. Yeah. And Chastity, you got to know the kids before anybody. What was it that drew you to them and, and made you just somehow feel that your family was going to be enlarged by, by their presence? Well, the first time I saw him, I didn't even see his hand at first. He winked at me and told me what his name was. And um, I went up to him and I saw his hand was just like his. And I looked at um, our director, Ms. Tammy, and I was like, his hand, and she's like, I already know. I've already, I've already had my moment over it. So that is just crazy. It was instant connection. I mean, he didn't even have to say anything. Just looking at him, I just, I don't know. It's, it's a to feel. beautiful, beautiful story. What a great gift of God you've given these precious children, and tonight, touching our hearts with thank, this great thank story. You, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Well, in a moment, Barry and his band are going to perform, and you're going to want to hear it. But first, Keith Bilbrey going to tell you how you can get the music of Barry and the band Appalachian Roadshow. 
Well, to get your copy of Appalachian Road Show's album, Tribulation, just head to your favorite music seller. You can find out more about the band at theappalachianroadshow.com. And after the show, be sure to go to Huckabee.tv for an online exclusive encore performance of the song, The Appalachian Road. Coming up in 60 seconds, Appalachian Roadshow performs on Huckabee. Don't you dare miss it. Now, Barry Abernathy is joined by bandmates Jim Van Cleve, Daryl Webb, Todd Phillips, and Zeb Snyder. Take it away, Appalachian Roadshow. One, two, three, hey. How's everybody doing? My grandpa, he's 95. 